Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 252. We've got two big Bible questions today. How was Paul all things to all people? And also, are ghosts real according to the Bible? So quite a spectrum of topics for us today. It's Friday, another weekend is upon us, and Labor Day is coming Monday. This year seems to be going by, on the one hand, really crazy fast, and then on the other hand, kind of excruciatingly slow. Time is like such a weird thing these days. Once again, in 1 Samuel, we have a fantastically weird and interesting chapter to deal with, speaking of weird things, a chapter where we will see the appearance of a real live ghost, or will we? And actually, now that I think about it, I guess a ghost wouldn't really be live, would it? Anyway, I don't know that I know the answer to that question. We will see something exceedingly curious in 1 Samuel 28. I'll say that much. In fact, we'll see a few exceedingly curious things in that chapter. Uh, But I'm not going to talk about that first. First and foremost today, I want to discuss a spiritual truth that is almost infinitely more important than our little ghost discussion. Today's Bible passages do include 1 Samuel 28, Psalm 45, Ezekiel 7, and 1 Corinthians 9. And today, we're going to split our focus between two different chapters, radically different as it turns out. Our first first focus we're going to talk about comes from 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul declares his strategy of becoming all things to all people so that I may be by every possible means save some. Now, this is a very important, powerful discipleship ministry evangelism strategy. And the verse I just quoted is really one of the more well-known verses in the entire Bible. Now, there's a verse that precedes it by a couple of verses that uh, is not nearly as well-known, but I actually kind of believe it should be. In verse uh, chapter 9, verse 19, Paul says, Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. This is an incredibly humble and powerful approach to ministry, and honestly wish more pastors and cardinals and popes and archdeacons and prelates and Whatever other fancy church person title you can come up with would actually live by this principle. Jesus says the key to greatness is to serve, to be a servant. And Paul, one of the greatest evangelists ever, says his method of reaching people for Jesus is to make himself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. May we Christians have more and more of a heart like that to reach a lost and dying world. So here are some fantastic words from Spurgeon on what Paul meant by being all things to all people. Charles Spurgeon says, Paul went to his work always with an intense sympathy for those he dealt with, a sympathy which made him adapt himself to each case. If he talked to a Jew, he did not begin at once blurting out that he was the apostle of the Gentiles, but he said he was a Jew. As a Jew, he was. He raised no questions about nationalities or ceremonies. He wanted to tell the Jew of him who Isaiah said, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, in order that he might believe in Jesus and so be saved. On the other hand, if he met a Gentile, the apostle of the Gentiles never showed any of the squeamishness which might have been expected to cling to him on account of his Jewish upbringing and education. He ate as the Gentile ate and drank as he did, sat with him and talked with him. 
was, as it were, a Gentile along with him, never raising any question about circumcision or uncircumcision, but solely wishing to tell that one about Christ, who came into the world to save both Jew and Gentile and to make them one. If Paul met a Scythian, he spoke to him in the barbarian tongue and not in classic Greek. If he met a Greek, he spoke to him as he did at Areopagus, which with language that was fitted for the polished Athenian. He was all things to all men that he might by all means save some. So let it be with you, Christian people. Your one business in life is to lead men to believe in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and every other thing should be made subservient to this one object. If you can but get them saved, everything else will come right in due time. Mr. Hudson Taylor, a dear man of God who has labored much in inland China, finds it helpful to dress as a Chinaman and wear a pigtail. He always mingles with the people and as far as possible lives as they do. Let me pause for just a moment and say, at the time Spurgeon was writing at this, which was the late 1800s, it was indeed the style in China for the men to wear uh, long braided pigtail hair. I don't believe that's the current style, so just letting you know, this was written quite a while ago. Spurgeon continues, This policy of Taylor seems to be a truly wise policy. I can understand that we shall win upon a congregation of Chinese by becoming as Chinese as possible. And if this be the case, we are bound to be Chinese to the Chinese to save the Chinese. It would not be amiss to become a Zulu to save the Zulus, though we must mind that we do it in another sense than Colenso did. More on that in a second. If we can put ourselves on a level with those whose good we seek, we shall be more likely to affect our purpose than if we remain aliens and foreigners and then talk of love and unity. To sink myself to save others is the idea of the apostle. To throw overboard all peculiarities and yield a thousand indifferent points in order to bring men to Jesus is our wisdom if we would extend our master's kingdom." Never may any whim or conventionality of ours keep a soul from considering the gospel. That would be horrible indeed. Better by far to be personally inconvenienced by compliance with things indifferent than to inhibit a sinner's coming by quarreling about trifles. What a powerful word. By the way, if you're wondering who the Colenso referred to here is, Here is, it's John Colenso, a British churchman and a friend and missionary to the Zulu people in Africa. Colenso had a lot to commend him in his life, but he was a universalist in direct conflict with the teachings of Jesus, like John 14, 6, and he believed the Bible contained mistakes uh, and had some other theological issues. So Spurgeon here is seemingly applauding Colenso's heart for the Zulus and his all things to all people ministry to them, but he's cautioning against adopting those kind of theological convictions. Well, next, we turn our attention to ghosts. Actually, believe it or not, ghosts is a subject that Spurgeon himself discussed multiple times in his life and wrote about quite frequently, believe it or not. So let me give you a couple of Spurgeon ghostly quotes to prove that I'm not just making that up. In one instance, Spurgeon, writing as one of his alter egos, John Plowman, is writing about the ridiculous things written on tombstones, and he actually quotes something written on a tombstone of his time. And he says, Whoever was the foolish creature at Occam Cemetery, one of the prettiest spots in these parts, who wrote these outrageous lines? 
The Lord saw good, I was topping off wood, and down fell from the tree. I met with a check, and I broke my blessed neck, and so death topped off me. Spurgeon, to that epithet, says, Here's proof, I'm sorry, to that epitaph, says, Here's proof positive that some fools are left alive to write on the monuments of those who are buried. Well may there be ghosts about. No wonder the sleepers get out of bed when they are so badly tucked in. In other words, he's saying, totally tongue-in-cheek, that he totally understands how there might be ghosts around if they have such garbage poetry written on their tombstones. Now, let me give you one more. Spurgeon says, We do not affirm that ghosts have never been seen, for no one has any right to hazard so broad a statement. But all spirits, as such, must be invisible, and the two sorts of human spirits which we know of are both by far too seriously occupied to go roaming about this earth, rapping on tables or frightening simpletons into fits. Well, does that mean Spurgeon believed in ghosts? Actually, reading more about it, probably not, but he does seem to refuse to categorically deny the possibility of their existence, which is sort of a position I share, in part because of this first Samuel 28 passage, which is very interesting. So let's go read it, and uh, if it's late at night and you're given to being a little bit scaredy-wearedy, why don't you make sure your nightlight is on? First Samuel chapter 28, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. At that time, the Philistines gathered their military units into one army to fight against Israel. So Achish said to David, You know, of course, that you and your men must march out in the army with me. So David replied to Achish, Good, you will find out what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will appoint you as my permanent bodyguard. By this time Samuel had died, all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city, and Saul had removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid, and his heart pounded. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams, or by the Urim, or by the prophets. Saul then said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I can go and consult her. His servants replied, There is a woman at Endor who is a medium. P.S. A medium is a person who supposedly can talk to dead people. Verse 8. Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and set out with two of his men. They came to the woman at night, and Saul said, Consult the spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said to him, You surely know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you setting a trap for me to get me killed? Then Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you from this. Who is it that you want to bring up me to bring up for you? The woman asked. Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, and then she asked Saul, Why did you deceive me? You are Saul. But the king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, the woman answered. Then Saul asked her, What does he look like? An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up, Samuel asked Saul. I'm in serious trouble, replied Saul. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams, so I've called on you to tell me what I should do. Samuel answered, Since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? 
The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. You did not obey the Lord and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, and the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell flat on the ground. He was terrified by Samuel's words and was also weak because he had not eaten anything all day and all night. The woman came over to Saul, and she saw that he was terrified and said to him, Look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant. Let me set some food in front of you. Eat, and it will give you strength so you can go on your way. He refused, saying, I won't eat. But when his servants and the woman urged him, he listened to them. He got off the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf at her house, and she quickly slaughtered it. She also took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread. She served it to Saul and his servants, and they ate. After they got up, and they left that night. So, (laughs) there it is. I've actually heard more than one preacher and scholar, in fact a lot of them, suggest that there is no way possible that this was Samuel returned from the dead. Let me give you an example of these takes. One person said, The witch of Endor conjured up an apparition, but it was certainly not Samuel. Instead, it was a demon. You might ask, how do you know it was a demon? Well, a study of the whole Bible will reveal that it could not have been anything else but a demon. Huh? How about this? The whole point has been missed. It was not Samuel, only perceived by Saul to be him. It was a familiar spirit or demon that had been raised up by the conjuring of the witch of Endor. It could not be Samuel because he was just a mortal man that had died and the familiar spirit was only impersonating him. Or Bishop Patrick says, It's not in the power of wishes, witches to disturb the rest of good men or bring them back into the world when they please, nor would the true Samuel have acknowledged such a power in magical hearts. But to Saul... This was a proper device of Satan to draw veneration from him, to possess him with an opinion of the divination, and so to rivet him in the devil's interests. Another scholar, Mr. Brown, in his self-interpreting Bible says, When the woman saw Samuel, that is, the devil in the likeness of Samuel, Satan hath no power over the souls of glorified saints. God would never give him any countenance consulting of devils. Samuel's soul had not uh, to come out of the earth, nor would he have said that Saul should be with him tomorrow, for it is not probable the battle was fought on that day. Actually, that's not true. It was fought the next day. Dr. Gill observes, Samuel said to Saul, why have you disquieted me to bring me up? This makes it a clear case that this was not the true Samuel. His soul was at rest in Abraham's bosom, and it was not in the power of men or devils to disquiet it. So, reading all that, it couldn't be Samuel brought back, could it? Actually, I believe it 100% was Samuel. And I believe that, not because I know for a fact myself, but I believe that because the text of 1 Samuel 28 makes it pretty explicitly clear. Now, in order for this to not be Samuel, then the Bible itself has to be virtually misleading us here, and I don't believe that for a second. So I'm going to give you four reasons from my book that I wrote, uh, I think it was last year, 2018, I don't know, the last couple of years. It's called Angels, Ghosts, and Other Bible Mysteries, 
And it's a book that's available on Amazon, but it's not does not come with a proton pack or ecto goggles or a ghost trap nor add the ecto one cadillac gm giant station wagon but uh it's got a few interesting stories in it so you may want to check it out and this is what i said about first samuel 28 a most fascinating and troubling passage if you're wondering whether the prophecy of samuel came true at least the samuel that's mentioned in this passage then the answer is that it absolutely happened just exactly like that samuel said Saul and his sons, including the faithful Jonathan, did indeed meet their end the very next day. Was the witch of Endor genuinely able to call up Samuel from the dead? Well, here are four difficult-to-argue reasons why we should believe that the spirit in this text is indeed Samuel, somehow, some way returned from the dead. Number one, the Bible grammatically indicates that, quote, Samuel is the one speaking in verse 15 and verse 16. Samuel asked Saul, and Samuel answered. For those who are skeptical that the witch of Endor called up the real Samuel, this argument is the most difficult to overcome because it's a grammatical argument, and calling it into question seems to be calling into question the integrity of the Bible. If the Bible says Samuel said something, I believe it. Full stop. Number two, verse 20 indicates that it was Samuel speaking and not a hoax. Verse 20 says, Saul fell flat on the ground. He was terrified by what? He was terrified by Samuel's words. Once again, this seems to be an airtight reason to believe that the Bible is portraying the spirit called up to be literally Samuel. Number three, Samuel speaks words that are faithful to God and confirm to the words, conform to the words of Samuel when he was alive. It would be difficult to imagine how a Canaanite pagan woman might know how to give such godly counsel and maybe even more difficult to know how a demon or a familiar spirit would give to Saul the exact same good, wise, godly kind of counsel that Samuel gave while he was alive. Number four reason I believe that this is most certainly Samuel. The prophecy of Samuel comes true exactly as it was foretold and precisely as we would expect of the prophet of the Lord. Spoken of in 1 Samuel 3, 19, 20, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Well, this Samuel, according to First. Uh, Samuel 28, this guy that was brought up made a completely accurate prophecy to Saul, and I believe that demonstrates grammatically and really spiritually and beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was the Samuel. Does that prove the case? Well, I believe it does, but maybe you could leave a comment on the blog or our YouTube page or wherever if you aren't fully convinced and we can revisit this at another time if we need to. But for now, let's continue in our scripture reading with Ezekiel chapter 7. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. This is what the Lord God says to the land of Israel. Ah, an end. The end has come. On the four corners of the earth, the end is now upon you. I will send my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. I will punish you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you, but I will punish you for your ways and for your detestable practices within you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This is what the Lord God says. Look, one disaster after another is coming. An end has come. The end has come. It is awakened against you. Look, it's coming. Doom has come on you, inhabitants of the land. The time has come. The day is near. 
There will be panic on the mountains and not celebration. I will pour out my wrath on you very soon. I will exhaust my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. I will punish you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will punish you for your ways and for your detestable practices within you. Then you will know that it is I, the Lord, who strikes. Here is the day. Here it comes. Doom is on its way. The rod has blossomed. Arrogance has bloomed. Violence has grown into a rod of wickedness. None of them will remain. None of that crowd, none of their wealth, and none of the imminent among them. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let the buyer not rejoice and the seller not mourn, for wrath is on her whole crowd. The seller will certainly not return to what was sold, as long as he and the buyer remain alive, for the vision concerning her whole crowd will not be revoked, and because of the iniquity of each one, none will preserve his life. They have blown the trumpet and prepared everything, but no one goes to war, for my wrath is on her whole crowd. The sword is on the outside, plague and famine are on the inside. Whoever's in the field will die by the sword, and famine and plague will devour whoever is in the city. Their survivors among them will escape and live on the mountains. Like doves of the valley, all of them will moan, each over his own iniquity. All their hands will become weak, and all their knees will run with urine. They will put on sackcloth, and horror will overwhelm them. Shame will cover all their faces, and all of their heads will be bald. They will throw their silver into the streets, and their gold will be like something filthy. Their silver and gold will be unable to save them in the day of the Lord's wrath. They will not satisfy their appetites or fill their stomachs, for these were the stumbling blocks that brought about their iniquity. He appointed his beautiful ornaments for majesty, but they made their detestable images from them. Their abhorrent things, therefore I have made these into something filthy to them. I will hand these things over to foreigners as plunder and to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they will profane them. I will turn my face from them as they profane my treasured place. Violent men will enter it and profane it. Forget the chain, for the land is filled with crimes of bloodshed, and the city is filled with violence. So I will bring the most evil of nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and their sacred places will be profaned. Anguish is coming. They will look for peace, but there will be none. Disaster after disaster will come, and there will be rumor after rumor. Then they will look for a vision from a prophet, but instruction will perish from the priests and counsel from the elders. The king will mourn, the prince will be clothed in grief, and the hands of the people of the land will tremble. I will deal with them according to their own conduct, and I will judge them by their own standards. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Psalm chapter 45 verse 1. My heart is moved by a noble theme as I recite my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most handsome of men. Grace flows from your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Mighty warrior, strap your sword at your side. In your majesty and splendor, in your splendor, ride triumphantly. In the cause of truth, humility, and justice, may your right hand show your awe-inspiring acts. Your sharpened arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. Myrrh, aloes, and cassia perfume all your garments. From ivory palaces, harps bring you joy. King's daughters are among your honored women. The queen, adorned with gold from Ophir, stands at your right hand. Listen, daughter, pay attention and consider. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Bow down to him, for he is your lord. 
The daughter of Tyre, the wealthy people, will seek your favor with gifts. In her chamber, the royal daughter is all glorious, her clothing embroidered with gold. In colorful garments, she is led to the king. After her, the virgins, her companions, are brought to you. They are led in with gladness and rejoicing. They enter the king's palace. Your sons will succeed your ancestors. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will cause your name to be remembered for all generations. Therefore, the peoples will praise you forever and ever. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, because you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Don't we have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife like the other apostles, the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I have no right to refrain from working? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is God really concerned about oxen? Isn't he really saying it for our sake? Yes, this is written for our sake, because he who plows ought to plow in hope, and he who threshes should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. For my part, I have used none of these rites, nor have I written these things that they may be applied in my case. For it would be better for me to die than for anyone to deprive me of my boast. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast, because I am compelled to preach, and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward, but if unwillingly, I am entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? To preach the gospel and offer it free of charge, and not not make full use of my rights in the gospel. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people." To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win Jews, to those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak, in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I may by every possible means save some." Now I do all of this because of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Amen. Friends, may the Lord bless the reading of the word and may he enable and call and urge you and I on in being all things to all people. 
the slave of all, so that we may point them to Jesus and win them to the glorious gospel of Christ. Good day to you and Godspeed.